0: Hello. (laughs) Welcome Welcome back. (laughs) I'm Eden Carter. I'm Sarah Bulla. And this is Women on Set. So last time we talked about Deary's and her movie Pariah. Uh, We hope you checked it out if you hadn't already. And we also mentioned Paris is Burning. So if you watched Paris is Burning, please tweet at us. Let us know what you think. Yeah.
1: Our Twitter is WPG.
0: And just before we get into the episode, we want to give a little disclaimer. We try our best every episode to be respectful and be um, cognizant of the people who are listening. We don't have perfect language and we're always trying to improve. So please let us know if anything bothers you or if anything can be improved. It's a continued education. We always want to get better. So let mm-hmm. us know.
1: We're always open to learning. This episode is brought to you by the Woman TV and Film Network. It's hosted at the Winnipeg Film Group.
0: This month's Meetup is going to be tonight at the Cinematheque, which is at 100 Albert, I believe, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's going to be hosted by Cleo Curtis.
1: Okay, so for this week's segment of So This Happened, um, we're giving a bit of update on the whole Kevin Spacey situation. He is um, going to be removed from the movie All the Money, directed by Ridley Scott. They've already filmed it, and it's coming out in December, but they are going to recast him and refilm bits and then just, like, special effects, the new at- new actor, into it. It's kind of amazing
0: that he can just be removed that easily. And what's even more amazing is he's being replaced by Christopher Plummer. There's quite an age gap there. And there were a lot of prosthetics. I saw pictures of Kevin Spacey on set from the shooting they've already done and he definitely does look quite different I can see how for sure it's more plausible than if it had just been Kevin Spacey without any prosthetics on his face but it's still pretty amazing that they plan to still release the movie December 22nd I think Mm -hmm. they said that's a huge turnaround pretty bizarre well like a
1: hugely impressive turnaround time
0: yeah I'm not quite sure how it's going to happen but that's (laughs) what Ridley Scott is saying. I so.
1: also wonder how it looks cuz anytime there's that like artificial like it looks amazing but I just know it's fake so it kind of takes me out of it like in Star Wars where there's like um they make like younger Carrie Fisher and she's all like special effect in there I, I just know it's not real you know.
0: Yeah, and they also had to do it for The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus or whatever that movie yeah, was with, with Heath, Heath Ledger. Ledger. Yeah. Oh, they had to bring in other actors so the character became many people. Remember they used like colin farrell and a couple others where he be anyway doesn't matter it's kind of cool how they do that it's bizarre <laughs> um so also another update is louis ck we mentioned him in our last podcast we talked about how he the things surrounding louis ck and his um the possible allegations against him were just sort of rumors there's just nothing concrete and immediately after we talked about it on the episode <laughs> it came to fruition and a bunch of people came out and spoke out saying uh that he had sexually assaulted them so
1: well not sexually assaulted it's, they've been putting in the articles of sexual misconduct but okay. that's basically just him masturbating in front of women against their
0: wishes right and so Louise ck released a letter afterwards and i guess there was mixed reviews you saw on twitter
1: yeah, I think it's like no response to you masturbating in front of women without their wishes is going to be good. Like overall, I thought his letter was pretty good. So general overview first. Um, five women came forward, uh, women comedians, who said that he had uh, they had, like, he had invited them to her, his hotel room. And then kind of like they think it's a joke at first that he's like, I'm just going to like take off my pants and start doing that. Um, but yeah, so I think what was most impactful about the article from I think it was New, New, New York Times was the woman describing how, like, betrayed they felt because he's this, like, p- really prominent comedian that they admired and then he's just kind of, like, abusing his power. Um, and then, so Louis C- C.K. released a statement saying it's all true. It was, like, a pretty lengthy response, and but the general gist of it is that it's true. He used to think this, but now he thinks, like... Uh, he's recognized that he's, like, taking advantage of the, like, admiration in his power position. And he apologized to all, like, the content that it will affect. But people still aren't super pleased with his, um like, response. And Eden was saying how it's, like, not very well written.
0: Yeah, my, from my perspective, when I was reading it, I thought... It was clear what he was intending to say. There were a few things I thought should have been rewritten to make that clear. What was important here is that he acknowledged, one, that it was true, two, that he was wrong, three, that he is in the process of getting a better education and working on listening and understanding women's perspectives more than he had in the past, and that he understands that there's a change that has to be made and that he is of a much different mind now than he was through all of this um, and that he has been wrong through its entirety but I know that it sounds weird because I do think that even though he covered those bases there's a narrative that could have been taking more responsibility or coming from a more humble place but I also think that is in the way that it was written and that could have just been done differently he should have had some I don't know how much editing was done to it but I definitely think that someone should have taken a second look and been like you need to reword a couple things here but
1: Mm. I think it was the best like response that I've seen so far, though, because mm-hmm. at least the basics of, like, yes, I did this. Yes, that was wrong. Here's how I'm going to, like, fix it going forward. Or not fix it, because I can't really be fixed, but, like, change myself going forward. And
0: he did acknowledge that his position, no matter what burden he bears, is nothing compared to what he's put other people through because of all of this. So I think that's really important to acknowledge as well. What was interesting is uh, I just saw an interview with Meryl Streep. She was talking with Anna Wintour from Vogue. And they were talking about what would be different this year at awards season. And Meryl Streep just said that she believes this is a really important moment. This is this in time is a really important shift. And she thinks that this year, finally, people are going to come in the room and look and see nine men and two women and think, hey, there's a problem here. Or they're going to see certain behavior and think, hey, that's not allowed. And we don't put up with that shit anymore, you know, like Mm -hmm. that there's been a shift. And so like that's really exciting to think about. I hope it's real. I hope it's happening. I hope that awards season will follow that narrative like Meryl Streep hopes, but we'll see.
1: And it's nice that even the smaller things are coming forward. Like something came out about George Decay groping someone years ago. And it's like not necessarily something like rape or anything, but it's still important to talk about and acknowledge and know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I do think it's important that people have an understanding that they should be afraid of that kind of thing. It will come out, people will talk about it, and they, like the victims, will have support. And there's ramifications. Right, exactly.
1: So speaking of award season, me and Eden were doing some research and found out that no woman has ever been nominated for Best Cinematography at the Oscars. Catherine Bigelow is the only woman to win Best Director, and there's only three women who have been nominated besides that. We couldn't figure it
0: out with Cannes. It appeared that no woman had ever been nominated for Best Cinematography for Cannes either, and... Uh Sophia Coppola for The Beguiled, she was the second woman to ever win Best Director. And I don't believe any woman has ever won Palm d'Or. I, that could be wrong. I just couldn't find it. So please, if any of you know better, please tweet at us. Let us know that there is hope out there, that maybe a <laughs> woman has already won these <laughs> awards at Cannes. Um, but yeah, that so far our research has concluded that it, now in 2017 only four women have ever been nominated for Best Director at the Oscars and not a single one has been nominated for Best Cinematography and can isn't much better. <laughs> so, that was
1: crazy to figure out because we honestly thought that and um, Ellen Karras, who we've uh, discussed in a previous episode, had been nominated for Eternal Sunshine at the Spotless Spine Best Cinematography, but she had only been nominated for like Best Do- Documentary for her um, debut feature that she directed.
0: And the cinematography so, in that movie for me at least seemed like a shoe-in. I would have mm-hmm. thought for sure like that some, she would be recognized on that level but anyway anyway
1: so that has been so this happens hashtag so this happened
0: (laughs) (laughs) um okay so Now we're going to talk about Reed Morano. Reed
1: Morano is a cinematographer and now director. She uh, um, directed the first three episodes of Handmaid's Tale and won an Emmy for that for Best uh, Directing in a Drama Series. And she was the second, or wait, um, the first woman in like over a decade to win that award. The last one was for uh, like someone directing an episode of ER, so that's pretty old. Um, And she's been a cinematographer for Skeleton Twins, Frozen River, Kill Your Darlings, and more. And uh, so she directed Handmaid's Tale. Tale, and recently she's had her feature debut with Meadowland. She's also the youngest member of the American Society of Cinematographers. She's 40, so that's not even, like, that's still pretty young, but not super young, so it's amazing that she's, like, the youngest member of that society. Um, and she did some cinematographer for Beyoncé's Lemonade, which is pretty badass.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And so I had never seen The Handmaid's Tale prior to us discussing Reed Murano, and this was my introduction. Um, here's a clip from The Handmaid's Tale.
1: I was asleep before. That's how we
0: let it happen. When they slaughtered Congress, we didn't wake up. When they blamed terrorists and suspended the Constitution, we didn't wake up then either. Now I'm awake. My name is Offred. I had another name. Ladies, I have to let you go. It's the law
1: now they needed to do it this way all the bank accounts and the jobs all at the same time Can you imagine the airports otherwise run, run,
0: run. Both of us have now seen the entire season I couldn't stop watching I only intended to watch the beginning because Reed Murano was responsible for directing the first 3 episodes but it's so addictive that I was definitely done the entire season within the week even though I was really busy
1: <laughs> it's so good
0: yeah, um, and so what we have learned now is that Reed Morano was actually responsible for a lot on the series. She was brought; she had to fight her way into the position of the director for the pilot. Um, that was originally uh, apparently the producers had originally said she was they she shouldn't get her hopes up because they already had a big uh, guy that was supposed to be directing it. And then Reed Morano basically wasn't going to take no for an answer. She d- continued to sort of harass them and, and bombard them and be like, Hey, hey, hey! What about this? What about this? And then uh, prepped. A pitch came in and ended up not only being the director for the first episode, but for the first three, won an Emmy for it, and then is also an executive producer for the show.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing hearing how she kind of like worked her way into it. She was friends with Elizabeth Moss, and for the uh, p- as part of the pitch, put together this like 120-page book of images to convey her vision.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And apparently, she listened to a song on repeat for the three days that it took her to prepare this pitch. So we're gonna play a little bit of that. I mm-hmm.
1: a great vulture article that actually outlines a lot of her directorial decisions so that like amazing shade of red that just pops in all those scenes of, of the handmaids wear, she helped pick that out with the costume designer um, apparently inspired by how the book is very specific in its description of colors um, and like those bonnets apparently they like were filming so close to the actors sometimes that the lens was like in the little bonnets that the handmaids are wearing I think
0: that's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently she cho- had a lot of say in some of the locations. She insisted on shooting in that one aquarium where um, Elizabeth Moss, Moss's character uh, and her family are in that one flashback?
1: Yeah, in a flashback with her uh, husband and child. She's often flashing back to her ch- child who she lost. Um, they filmed that in the Toronto Aquarium, and it looks amazing. Like it's, I'm glad she insisted on that decision, um, because the like blue background and the silhouette of her and her family is and the jellyfish is beautiful.
0: It's really unreal. And she also does a lot of really intimate things. It's not... It's become apparent that Reed Morano's style definitely always includes being super close to the actors and really a part of the actual scene itself. And so, in some of them, you can see that, like, she is really right up close. Alexis Bledel talked about how the camera was often less than a foot away from your face, and the both the DP and Reed Morano were just kind of like, "Yeah, this is the way it's going to be." So sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it forces the actors to get that like intense expression, like um, Alexis Bledel's character and Elizabeth Moss when they're having. Um, the emotional moments that I don't want to spoil. <laughs>
0: yeah, and there's one scene where uh, Alexis Badell's character has sort of a muzzle on, and she's her mouth is completely covered, and you still get so much expression from her eyes and her upper face.
1: <laughs> yeah, she does do the covering sometimes, like um, the first uh, introduction of Offred. She's in her room, and there's like a shadow over her face. Apparently that was very intentional, kind of like just connecting with her voice before you actually see her face. Mm-hmm. As a narrator, I think that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm.
0: And I feel like it was also important for the menacing characters. I think that the ant is portrayed in a way where you get to see a lot of really close up um, moments where you're trying to decide whether or not she's human, whether or not she has any moral compass at all. And as the season goes on, we start to understand her a little better, but for sure, at the beginning both her hardness and any sort of emotion that she might be fighting is definitely made stronger by those close-ups mm,
1: and oh my god like the scene where the hand the the scenes where the handmaids are all together are shot amazingly like the birthing and the salvaging and those bird's eye shots and apparently in the salvaging there's this one uh, um uh, moment where it goes to the handmaid who's pregnant and has like her eye is um um, has a scar on it, and apparently, like that was a uh, reed going like, go get her, standing like not participating in the salvaging and like kind of directing like the camera people. Um, and I think that's just such a great shot that all these handmaids are being so vicious, and then there's that one like slightly like crazy handmaid in, like the off to the side holding her pregnant belly, just looking up at the sky, so daisy like um, in like a daze.
0: That's a great moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that the sort of symmetry and color usage for the scenes where it is all the handmaids together or all of the like not mistresses but uh, like the commander's wives together she does such a great job of framing those things so that it it's just like super appealing to look at super mesmerizing as they walk together
1: mm. apparently um uh, she was saying in the interview that this wasn't necessarily intentional. She just tried to like shoot um from the Handmaid's perspective at all times. But a lot of the times, like um, people around Offred, like parts of them are cut off because it's from like Offred's perspective. So during the um the ceremony, the commander's head—it's just his torso, like moving—and that's because she just wanted it to be what Offred would see. And so it it's just creates oh it puts you into the the messed up situation so well. <laughs>
0: And it's clear that Reed Morano had a lot of love for the material. She, in her pitch, she used tons of quotes from Margaret Atwood's book because, even though she wasn't going to use those quotes necessarily in any of the scenes, it was just really important to her to explain the narrative and and set the tone with those quotes.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that she kind of worked her way into the series. That's like a great lesson that like, if you want something, go for it and work hard to get it. Yeah,
0: and just because they've said a guy has the job doesn't mean the guy has the job. <laughs> So also, um, aside from Elizabeth Moss being amazing, there was also Alexis Bledel. She won an Emmy, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, Yvonne Strahovski, I hope that I pronounced that right, she plays the commander's wife. And I thought that her performance throughout the entire series was amazing. I thought she was so good. Really, Mm -hmm. really compelling. And um, I feel like even though the story is amazing, this is still a series that's performance driven or like character driven. and, uh, And everything is really up close and personal. The cameras are always... Within a couple inches of their faces when anything dramatic happens, and and I thought they all like shine.
1: Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of things in there that delivered wrong could be like super cringeworthy because it's just so like, oh such a like a like um, dystopian scenario. They have flashbacks to like how what led to where she is now. So when all like the women are let go from their jobs, and this just kind of this like we're forced to let you go. It could be very like. That's so absurd it's laughable but the way that everyone delivers it makes it just you, you feel like what if this could actually happen it puts you in the seat
0: it really it really does make it seem plausible i heard some people talking about how they don't think that men relate to this series as well because they don't think that this would actually happen and for all women they kind of stop and go uh yes it could i, I completely see how this is plausible i completely see how religion and the patriarchy could completely turn this into a reality for us i also think that uh, they did a really great job of translating Margaret Atwood's sense of humor. I think that that sort of dark cleverness is really shown. There's a lot of moments where I found myself smirking or laughing, even amid this torture. And I think that makes it watchable because it is a really heavy series. There's a lot of heavy content. It's pretty depressing in a lot of ways, and yet oh, you yeah. still there's still this sense of humor that drives through.
1: Um, I like when, uh, because you hear um, Offred's internal dialogue, and uh, one time a person asks her a question, of course she has to respond in such a proper manner, but in her internal dialogue she was like, I don't know, I want to get this later or something. Like, it's just, like, her kind of, like, sassy responses in her head versus what she actually has to say. And they use a lot of modern songs. Like, uh, they use the song from the end of The Breakfast Club when she's having, like, a badass moment later in the series, and they do use a lot of, like, modern music throughout. I know that scene where she's, like, flashing back to... Uh, she was jogging and they're doing uh, that Peaches song, like "fuck away. the pain away."
0: That was away. great. I was like, yeah. it's Peaches. Or you don't own me. That's one of my favorite songs ever. And mm. it was at the be- it was at the end of the first episode, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think what we've decided about The Handmaid's Tale is it is an amazing story, so thank you, Margaret Atwood. It's also an amazing series, and that involved everybody. I
1: haven't had to think about that with TV before, like, a lot of the times when you see, like, someone's, crea- like, she doesn't have a created by a stamp, so oftentimes when you see a created by a stamp with other TV shows, like Stranger Things, the Duffer Brothers, everyone just kind of assumes everything is because of them. Yeah, or but like something can't... by
0: Shonda Rhimes.
1: Yeah, so, but we can't really claim that with this one, but she did, like, direct the first three episodes and set the tone, which must be very
0: like important and so yeah Marie Reed Morano was as we were talking about with Handmaid's Tale um, she likes to get up close and personal and it sounds like that's something that she really it's funny listening to I mean imagine that men feel the same way maybe I don't know if they do and I'm just not listening to the right interviews but in the last few things that I've heard from uh, interviews from women women, that includes Ellen Curris it includes um, photographer Annie Leibovitz and now Reed Morano it it's all about getting in and getting close and getting intimate with the person on set. And so for Reed Morano, that means having a camera and being within touching distance and being one of the characters within a scene. And so I thought thought that was really cool and probably, and quite evident, you feel like you're in The Handmaid's Tale. Um, I was also going to say that in the theme of Reed Morano on colour, I feel like that translates a little bit to her uh, DP work in The Skeleton Twins because even though I was bothered a little bit by the close-ups in that movie because I felt like it didn't necessarily suit the material. I was looking for a more awkward, um, distant, airy kind of feel, and I felt like the close-ups were sort of just disorienting, like I was missing parts of their bodies and heads and stuff that I just wanted to see. Uh, The colour did really stand out, and I definitely think that now knowing her work in The Handmaid's Tale, it's probably a lot of uh, her opinion that... that Uh, Here's a short clip from Skeleton Twins.
1: We're going out. What? It is Halloween. Lance is at fantasy football. I say you put on something pretty and or freaky, preferably both.
0: Yeah. I can do this. I do oh, I want to do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell me if you don't like it. I will tell you immediately if I don't like it. Ah! <laughs> is
1: that a good scream? Oh. That was a great
0: scream. I love it. Oh, my god.
1: So it's about a pair of twins who like hadn't seen each other in a decade, and one of them. This isn't really a spoiler because it happens one of the first like few minutes. Um, one of them attempts suicide, so the other one they come to um, together to stay t- with each other for a while and have to acknowledge like the past demons and stuff like that. So it was surprisingly dark in terms of like suicidal themes, but it's also really humorous. And infidelity is, and all yeah. that
0: stuff, and there's um uh, and both siblings were planning to commit suicide at the same time. Yeah, that was
1: great in the opening, um, well um, Bill Hader's character is actually committing suicide Kristen Wiig's character is contemplating it and that was that was one of the shots that I actually liked she has like pills in one hand and then as she's being called to be let know that her brother has attempted suicide she brings out her phone in the other hand and just kind of this like do I answer the phone or do I kill myself hmm
0: that was another one of the shots that bothered me because it looked her- like her eyes didn't align with the framing of the phone and the pills uh, Such I didn't notice small things would just like the things that bug you you know <laughs> yeah know. anyway so the Skeleton Twins was directed by Craig Johnson but Reed Moran was the DP for that one?
1: Mm-hmm. I was kind of curious how like um, the skeleton motif like visually it's not really mentioned that much like like uh, verbally that it's skeleton. So I'm wondering if that was added like if that is part of the visual cinematography stuff or it was written into the script that there's going to be all these skeletons around because it's not like the I, like acknowledge verbally that like there's a bunch of skeletons and that's like because our dad gave us a skeleton when we were young I guess, <laughs> and we love Halloween but there's a bunch of skeletons all over the place and, and that's they kind of have
0: sh- tattoos of skeletons on yeah. their body. And oh yeah, that I guess them. that's kind of. And then it continually goes back to this scene of their dad with a skeleton mask on and he is we never actually see his face. There for... were a few
1: things in there that were like interesting but it's kind of a talking heads movie because it's a lot of like humor and like dialogue
0: and yeah. And there's definitely moments where it's really. Uh, interesting and I mean Kristen Wiig looks great in every scene she frames her and puts her into focus in a way where we really get all the blue and the expression out of her eyes we definitely feel close to her in certain moments but um and I think that maybe some of the awkward framing has to do with the awkwardness in the movie but I definitely felt like it was cropped funny sometimes I felt like the a lot of the shots were similar. Like, there was a lot of, like, these medium or close-up shots that were pretty, like, similar frame to frame, and I just thought, like, I, I it would be nice to have some variation, but, yeah, anyway. And so, Meadowland, I haven't seen, but Sarah watched.
1: Yes, I watched Meadowland. It's about um, a couple that's dealing with their child being, uh, kid like, kidnapped at a rest stop. It's, like, a parent's worst nightmare, and basically the kind of, like, in-between of, like, they don't know what happened. They can't mourn, because they don't know if he's dead exactly. They can't, like continue searching for him because it's been a year already and like there's like and also the husband is a police officer played by Luke Wilson and uh, Olivia Wilde plays the mom and she's a teacher so they both have kind of careers that are constantly reminding them of this like um, like failure to protect their child.
0: You doing today how are you doing Stopping angry no, i'm not you mad. are i want to see this guy right now right now
1: um visually it's like uh first of all i just want to say it's like super sad if you're going to watch this movie just set aside some like sad time because it's like oh my god it's a, well, fundamentally a sad concept but also just like leans into the sadness and uh, um, I think it might have been better if it focused on one character like uh, if you just followed Olivia Wilde's character and her kind of like going off her meds like um, starting to kind of unravel that way then I think it might have like been more followable but maybe kind of cuts back and forth between her and Luke Wilson's character and so I find like it kind of stop and start in terms of like uh, forward action because for the first half it's kind of characterization and establishing where they are but the latter half actually starts to pick up and there's some really impactful moments and uh, I like my favorites are definitely with Olivia Wilde though they did a great job with uh, directing her and um, she's like wandering around the city in this like bright yellow hoodie that's like very visually pleasing and it's kind of like um, she's just looking for something and it's uh, she's unraveling and there's a point where um, it looks like she's going to attempt suicide and like the from camera work in that scene is very like good It has a lot of like shallow and these perfect little movements of just like breathing almost and I really like that but overall very sad movie set aside some sad time for yourself when you watch it I had to like multitask to just be like oh my god I can't watch I can't just watch this I also need to check Facebook or else I'll get too sad (laughs) but it was well done because it made me really sad
0: (laughs) so we think that what we've established about Reed Morano is that she does like to be one with she it's obvious she likes to get up close and personal there's a lot of close intimate shots in the things that we've seen from her uh it's obvious that she doesn't mind getting a camera on her shoulder and being right Intouchable distance with the actors and that's like her preferred choice um yeah I think that the work we've seen so far is cool and I'm excited I, we don't know if she's coming back for the second season of um The Handmaid's Tale but it'll be interesting if she
1: does so oh, one of the next features she's uh directing though I'm super intrigued by it's called I Think We're Alone Now and it will be starring Elle Fanning and Peter Dinklage and it's like an apocalypse bonding kind of thing it reminds me of that um the plot description reminds me of that movie a while ago with Steve Carell and uh, uh, Kira Knightley. I can't remember what that one was called, but it was basically like a similar concept where there's an apocalypse and they're like, find each other. And then I like are forced to bond because there's no other people around. And it kind of sounds like that, except with Elle Fanning and Peter Dinklage. So I'm excited because they're awesome. <laughs> and Reed Marino is awesome. So check
0: it out. Um. And so for next week. Uh, We have a couple recommendations for movies that you should watch, just in general. Mm -hmm. And we like to pick things that are on Netflix because it's the easiest access. Mm -hmm. And nobody's stealing that way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So did you want to talk about...
1: Uh, Yeah, so we recommend uh, two features by Andrea Arnold. We've only seen two features, but I'm sure the other ones are good. Here's the trailer for Fish Tank. What's your problem? Your terrible <coughs> dancing's my problem. What's wrong with you? you what's wrong with me! Don't mind me, girl. Carry on. I'm a friend of your mother's. Get some clothes on me. You're half naked. Don't normally care. Where are you going? We're going for a drive. You want to come? No she won't want to come. I really love that movie it's about um, a girl uh, in the UK kind of like not in school at the moment and her mom is very like negligent and she's trying to like become a dancer but it's kind of a pipe dream and <laughs> that sounds really cheesy but it's well done and has all these like kind of visually cool things like she finds this horse and she connects with this horse that also sounds very cheesy but believe me it's cool.
0: Um, but I think the biggest narrative in that movie is about the mother-daughter relationship and then yeah. the mother er, and then the daughter and uh, the man that she develops a relationship yes, with. Yes her mom
1: has a boyfriend who's played by Michael Fassbender is that how you pronounce his name let's yeah. say it is.
0: Michael um, Fassbender is another person who has had allegations against him that makes it difficult because he's such a good actor and I and I have to And in the context
1: of that this movie it's kind of even creepier because it's, she yeah. develops a relationship with him kind of out of jealousy of the mom, trying to emulate her mom while also separating herself from her mom. It's interesting.
0: Same with his role in shame, which is a movie that I love. It's about sex addiction. Yeah. And Carrie Mulligan is so good and and I thought that they were great in that movie and anyway.
1: Mm-hmm. Um but her latest feature is called American Honey. Here's the trailer for American Honey.
0: It's a business opportunity. We go door to door, we sell magazines, we explore like America, we party. Come with us. Hey, you hey, yo. Got money! Got got, Woo. You got anybody who's gonna miss you? Not really. Okay, good. You're hired. Yeah. I like to make money get turned. I like to make money get,
1: get turned. Is she okay? Oh, yeah, you just gotta keep bringing your prayers, darling.
0: I've been trying to be Christian, but I can see the devil has a hold of the two of you. <laughs> I think the devil has a hold of your daughter. Hey! Where are you going? To make money! Hop in. I make money yeah. and
1: get oh. I like a girl with spa. Oh. It's a party!
0: It's a party! It's Jake! Hey, can I party too? Oh. What are you doing? Hey, Jake? No. Get the keys, get the money.
1: Car. You jump in the car, jump
0: in the car. Do you have any dreams? It's like future dreams? Nobody's ever asked me that. You think you're special? I am
1: It's actually like a a real, based on like a real life um, phenomenon in the states where these like teens go around in like groups like unofficial groups kind of uh, selling fake magazine subscriptions or is it actual magazine subscriptions. It was never really clear but it basically like convincing like uh, richer people to like give them money for like X magazine subscriptions and um, I can't remember what those uh, groups are actually called in the states but there was an article about it in the New Yorker I think. Anyway um, American Honey is about one girl who joins up with one of these groups and is going on like an American road trip kind of thing and it's like uh, she runs into Shia LaBeouf's character, who's been with the group for a while, and kind of showing her the ropes. And it's about like um, just this kind of like. Uh, millennial not knowing where you belong and going with the flow and like p- living in poverty kind of. and I think yeah. it's
0: also about trying to find family when you're in an unstable situation. She's a girl who's been abandoned by clearly everybody else in her life. She was made responsible for two children that were not hers. Mm-hmm. And um, so she tries to find an escape in all of that by joining onto this this sort of cultish um, group <laughs> bandwagon and um, and then puts up with behavior that normally that sort of tests your limits like how long do you put up with this kind of be- like treatment when uh you have self-respect but also when you need that kind of support system mm-hmm. and so she's yeah her her moral grounds are tested quite a lot and then so are so is her sort of um self-respect and integrity mm-hmm.
1: i like really like andrea arnold's style in terms of embracing whatever location she's in like fish tank is about like that kind of lower-income area of um, the UK, like those apartment blocks where it's just, like, a bunch of, like, kids with absentee parents. And then American Honey is about just, like, American road trip, but kind of in a different context of, like, people living in poverty but coming together. And but also ha-
0: the same thing, like, absentee parents, like, not Yeah, kind it. of
1: similar concepts, but uh, different setting. And she always, like, the, the visuals. sometimes is just, like, Um, fast food joints and all like the repeated ones that they pass but it's also shot so like well these like wides but constantly moving and I I really like the way that she like um, shows the context of location and kind of like circumstances of the characters and how that reflects onto them
0: yeah and she has a couple quotes here she says dramatically I like dark darkness I like conflict but I don't see the world as defined by them and then another time she says no matter what happens to you in your life uh, all the things all around you are amazing things and i think that in both movies those apply she sort of puts people in really dark situations and then sort of there's a lot of moments where you see this spark of life is great or i feel bliss or you know like this sort of lightness in the middle of darkness
1: mm-hm and also how she finds her lead actresses is, like, su- super interesting. Like, with um fish tank Katie Jarvis, she basically found her on, like, a t- train platform or something fighting with her boyfriend and was like, that's the vibe I'm going for. And the similar thing with uh, Sasha Lane, the lead of uh, American Honey. So yeah. they're just regular people who, like, were taken on for this role and re- do a really good job.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. And so, we recommend you watch both those movies. They are both on Netflix, Canadian Netflix, so definitely check them out if you get a chance. Um, and for next week, what we're going to do is dive into Sofia Coppola. Ooh. Sofia Coppola is the only woman, is one of the only other women who was nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. And I don't actually know, was she nominated for... Yeah, she was Virgin nominated for...
1: L- I thought it was Last in Translation. Oh,
0: Lost in Translation, you're right, totally. Yeah. Um, so, Sarah has never seen... Virgin Suicide, so I'm really excited for her to see <laughs> that one. Uh, we both we both love Lost in Translation. Uh, I think we have we both seen Marie Antoinette. I've seen little clips here and there, but okay. not the whole thing. And so what we plan to do, we want to see The Beguiled if we can get her hands on it, um, because this is what she's just won Best Director for at Cannes, and she that she was on, the second woman there to ever win Best Director uh, at Cannes. And then so we want to see that one. And then there's also somewhere. We both have seen Bling Ring. Um, and like oh that's the one we've both seen. Yeah, I watched it on a plane. Um, but yeah, for me, I'm a huge fan of Lost in Translation. I'm a huge fan of Virgin Suicides, not so much Marie Antoinette or The Bling Ring, but I'm excited to see somewhere and I'm excited to see The big out. So really looking forward to it and getting to know a little bit more about her and her bio and all the things.
1: Yeah, and she's a very auteur director to discuss, Very like has a very signature style.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm looking for- this is the first person we've sort of been able to... Well, aside from Ellen Kress, being able to sort of dive into more of the works. Like a
1: real, like, wide body of work. Yeah,
0: and so we think, I think that somewhere is on, maybe Marie Antoinette as well as on Netflix, so if you want to watch along with us, there are those options, and then also we encourage you to, Lost in Translation might be on Netflix as well, but uh, anyway, please if you can get your hands on them, watch the movies too, so you can join in next week and hear what we have to say about them.
1: Okay, thanks for listening. This has been Women On Set. You can connect with us on Twitter at WomenOnSetWPG, and we also post all of our uh, uh, podcasts on WordPress at womenonset.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening.